Welcome to NetSmart Care Threads, a podcast where human services and post-acute leaders across the healthcare continuum come together to discuss industry trends, challenges, and opportunities. Listen as we uncover real stories about how to innovate and improve the quality of care for the communities we serve. Let's get into the show. Welcome everyone to another NetSmart podcast. And today we have a special guest with us, an opportunity to talk about some of the communities that we serve, both the challenges and opportunity. With me is Jonah Cunningham. He currently serves as president and CEO of the National Association of County Behavioral Health and Development Disability Directors. In this role, he proactively advocates for national policies that recognize and support the critical roles counties play in caring for people affected by mental illness, addiction, and development disabilities. In this capacity, he also serves as executive director of the National Association of Rural Mental Health. Jonah, thank you for joining us today. Really appreciate you taking the time to have this conversation. Well, thank you for having me, Tom. I appreciate it. Well, I guess by me just giving that introduction and and talking about those things, I have guessed you've got to be really bored. There's nothing going on. These aren't topics that anybody's talking about? Not at all. Not at all. My calendar is totally clear, but in all seriousness, it's it's a, a timely issue and it's been an issue that's been percolating underneath. And unfortunately, the last, I would say, two decades with increased mortality from substance use, alcohol, suicide, as well as just the rising need post pandemic, it's really become a pressing issue for policymakers. And the work that my members have done for years is finally getting um, getting the attention it deserves. Well, and the, you just stated exactly why we wanted to have this conversation. I mean, if we, you go back five years, maybe 10 years, we would have to do a lot of explaining over what these topics are and what the challenges are. There isn't a day that we don't get up that we're not seeing these things at the forefront, in the headlines. And I'd venture to say every one of us is experiencing them in different ways in our own personal networks, our vocation, and the communities we lead. Um, You know, when you look at things like the epidemic of loneliness and just coming off the pandemic and this exasperating, some of the things that were there and maybe we could see some trends, but now not only exposed and we're dealing them in different ways, but I think we're also maybe more equipped and ready to handle them or at least talk about them, maybe not handle them, but talk about them in the things that we're doing. And that's really, Jonah, where I want to begin is, you know, before we get into some of the challenges and the opportunities that there are for us to go help our communities, what is it exactly that your organizations do in two organizations and you're chairing both of them? Let's share with everyone that context so that everyone's fully aware. I'll start with the one with the long name, the National Association of County Behavioral Health and Developmental Disability Directors, or if you want to save your breath, NACBID. And I know what you're thinking, Tom. Unfortunately, I do not get paid by the letter or else I'd be uh, (laughs) be a very rich man. Okay, I'm going to check that question off. You answered it. NACBID represents the local authorities. Uh, So the short story is in the 60s with deinstitutionalization, they closed down a lot of the the asylums and state hospitals. The goal was to treat individuals in their communities. And a lot of states look to local authorities or established local authorities that oftentimes overlap with counties. Sometimes they represent multiple counties. 
And there's a variety of different roles and responsibilities. Uh, some might oversee Medicaid contracts and, and come partner with providers to ensure that there's a safety net for individuals with serious mental illness or intellectual and developmental disabilities. Others might be actually providing services like the local mental health authorities in Texas or the community mental health authorities in Michigan. So we represent all of them. And so the terminology kind of differs where we say local authorities, public safety net, those types of things. But the goal is to try to treat people within their community that have profound serious mental illness or intellectual and developmental disabilities. So moving on to NARM or the National Association for Rural Mental Health, unlike NACBID, which is just local authorities, NARM membership includes everybody. It can be, uh, we have academics, we have students, we have advocates, we have policymakers, anyone that's really interested in promoting the accessibility, availability, and acceptability of behavioral health services in rural communities. Different kind of uh, histories for both of them. NARM is a proud history that started in all the way back in 1977. Um, one of the big things that NARM does is we actually publish a journal, the Journal for Rural Mental Health, with our partners at APA, really exploring what we can do in those communities where there might be a lack of providers, a lack of resources, but there certainly isn't a lack of creativity and a, cre and a lack of passion for these communities. We also do an annual conference for both of them, and I can talk more about NACBIT's conference, which is coming up. Well, and I guess, you know, we serve many communities here, and while these names to, to providers who work within uh, these organizations are very familiar with the work that you all do, to those who aren't as familiar, what are some of the things that you've been able to accomplish over the last many years, or those in the community, how would they see or identify with the work that you or your providers uh, do within the communities that they live? So I'm located in Washington, D.C., so a lot of my work is interacting with federal policymakers and sharing resources, kind of acting as a bridge between what's, ha what's coming down the pike in Congress or through an agency and explaining that to my members, as well as relating the experience on the local level to those federal policymakers. Now, for a lot of my members, it depends on the state, but for example, in Texas, um, with 988, so the, the new Behavioral Health Crisis Lifeline. Those four call centers are run by local mental health authorities in Texas that are members of NACBID. Um, they also provide services um, through what are called CCBHCs or Certified Community Behavioral Health Clinics in their communities. So there's a, there's an, a very tangible way that they're affecting and, and improving and caring for their communities, and we try to advocate on their behalf. Well, and I think that's a great example of things that people are hearing about for the first time, the introduction of 988, the CCBHCs, things that weren't maybe common um, topics of conversation now are. And it's also requiring and an ask and an opportunity for organizations as we rethink how can we serve our communities better. I mean, traditionally, it was very crisis-based. Now, as we're looking at how can we help a community not only find well-being for all, every one of its members, but also thrive, but also provide the right services at the right time in the right way for what they need. Not just, hey, we're showing up 
here's a crisis, but how can we connect those dots, if you will? It may be mental health, it may be addiction treatment, it may be some type of social services. And we're all looking at things differently now and saying, you know what, there might be a way for us to evolve and do these better. You know, I think these types of organizations, they play such a vital and essential role because people don't know what they don't know. And, you know, you've spoken about your NDC, you're able to not only advocate, but you're educating and informing others who are making decisions, not just on funding, but on the scope and the responsibility and really challenging status quo for if we can do it better, why not do it better? What are some of the current topics that you're having discussions with in DC these days? One is the implementation of 988, um, building out the whole crisis continuum, if you will. So backing up to the beginning, prior to 988, there was a suicide prevention lifeline, which was 1-800-273-8255. Now, last year, the, there was a launch where they shortened this number to 988 and expanded the role where it's not just a suicide prevention lifeline, but also a, a mental health crisis line. So it's not just people in danger of self-harm, but also for crisis, for um, episodic treatments, right? Um, psychotic breaks, et cetera. So with that, it also spawned this creation of a crisis continuum, and it falls between with three steps. So someone to contact, whether it's through 988 or text uh, or chat, someone to respond, and then somewhere safe to go which sounds easy in concept, but each has a lot of pillars, right? Someone to contact, we're talking with 988, it's only a year old, but there's still not a lot of penetration. There's not a lot of awareness of it. Uh, in fact, NAMI and uh, Ipsos, our friends at NAMI, did a, a survey that they released this summer that showed 82% of Americans were not aware of 988. So there's the awareness piece, and then there's also this geo-routing piece. If you're like me, I'm originally from Utah, go Utes. Um, but I'm, I live in DC. So if I call, the number, I'm actually routed because of my area code. I have an 801 number from Salt Lake. It'll actually go to the Utah call center rather than the DC one. So it's still a major issue. And we've also seen in regards to 988, a recent study that showed for those users that have used 988, that have been in crisis, only 30% of them would said they would use it again. So we really have to think about what that user experiences and making sure that those that are in crisis are getting the best care possible. And I can go down the other two lines as well, but I, you know. You keep going, you keep going. <laughs> no, well, let's do this, so Let's because I want to dive into this, because I don't think everyone necessarily appreciates it's one thing just to make a number available. The logistical and operational work behind it is pretty significant. And the other pieces that, that are out there is which call center? Because I know what communities are wrestling with now, and we've seen this in our own community, is there has to be an intentional collaboration between these, between these call centers, not just to make sure that a call is handshaked the right way, but that there's follow up and follow through on it and done um, and everything being done to give the information to that uh, maybe first responder, maybe to give that information to that care provider. And then also to ensure, to your point, 30 percent doesn't sound great uh, at all. So you and I would sit there and say we got work to do. The, I think the good thing is we got work to do. There is opportunity and we're doing something that we hadn't done before. 
I'm with Jonah Cunningham today. He serves as the president and CEO of the National Association of County Behavioral Health and Development Disability Directors. He's also the executive director of National Association of Rural Mental Health. And as we began our conversation, it's kind of giving him a hard time. I, I guess he's bored and I know he's not because these conversations are top of mind. It doesn't matter where you live at in our country right now. These are conversations that are finding their way to the headline, to the dinner table, to our communities, our schools, as we all look and say, if there's a better way for us to coordinate care, if there's a better way for us to support providers, and most ultimately, to make an impact and difference to the lives we serve, then let's do that. And it's happening. And Jonah, I wanted, that's why, let's use that as a segue for the top of mind things that are both challenges. I think it's easy to talk about the challenges, but these challenges are also opportunities. You know, just like we talked about with 988 is, hey, the challenges around the coordinating care piece and bringing everything together, we need to go do that. Well, we did. And while it's not perfect yet, it's absolutely evolving and making an impact. And we're seeing the positivity around that. You mind sharing some of the work streams or the threads that you and the organization and providers are thinking about these days? Another top of mind issue is workforce. There's a large demand for the for behavioral health and IDD services, so there there's a lot, increased strain on the wor existing workforce. We also have uh, a lot of people retiring. Challenges there: uh, recruitment, retainment. There's a, a, a battle for talent. But going to your point, there's also an opportunity to rethink the workforce. Um, there's been a big emergence in recent years of people with lived experience, people who may be in recovery or experience with serious mental illness that then later become peer support specialists, individuals that help people navigate the system, that are able to talk you know, on the level with somebody that maybe a doctor or a psychologist wouldn't be able to connect with them on a certain level. Um, also leveraging technology as well. I think there's a, a lot of opportunities to supplement with technology where we might lack workforce in certain areas for sure, but I think that's a fairly unexplored area. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm obviously biased. I'm part of a technology company serving our communities. I'm also a geek and technologist and uh, you know, I'm also the main number for my family for all tech support needs. So I, I see the good and the bad uh, and the challenges that, that are out there. And, you know, I think what we're here's how I look at the era. We spent the last 30 to 40 years digitizing healthcare, And if we're very candid, transparent, it's been more about what the what people do for the systems than what the systems do for them. That's also why there's been a challenge with the adoption piece. I think we're at the most critical and maybe most important and also the most fun time in the era of how technology is going to provi help providers for exactly what you said. Yeah, there is a challenge with the four workforce shortages, but we can begin to rethink things. How can technology be something that equips and empower users less about what they do for it and more about what that does for them? And we're seeing, we, we all see the headlines. When you look at technology, you know, we've had mobile, we've done tele, but now you have AI that is able to bring context awareness without us even entering a whole lot of keystrokes. Things that I can speak and say, I'm going to be talking with this person today and I can get an immediate context and readout of everything that might, might be happening 
that would have taken me maybe an hour or, or many hours with interruptions before. And now I'm able to better serve and see people. And, you know, it's been daunting because so much of our technology has been driven by compliance and kind of payment models. And now we're all sit back saying, okay, how can I help that end user? And then how can I help that consumer? And that's the tipping point that we're at. What's your thoughts on, on, on that? A lot of potential, whether it's making, helping clinicians and helping uh, the existing workforce be more efficient, right? Coordinate care. You mentioned AI with, with some of the note, with note taking after, after a session. But then there's also this piece, and we, we had a presentation at one of our, our um, internal NACBID committees on this, where for, for example, for group homes, for individuals with uh, intellectual and developmental disabilities, technology can also offload a lot of responsibilities. Things like wearable technology, smart home technology, where there might previously there might be a need for an individual to be in the house to monitor to make sure there's uh, compliance with medication and, and making sure that um, the residents are, are, are safe. Now we can look and use technology and leverage that freeing up staff time and making it more efficient. So I think there's a lot of potential just with efficiency and then also not saying that they're gonna be robot clinicians because there certainly is not. There's this need for human connection within behavioral health, but we can also work even more efficiently by leveraging technology. Well, I've done right, and that's the focal point of all of us. It creates more human connection because uh, it's less about us typing in, updating, filling out a form, and it's more what you and I are doing right now. It's having a conversation and a world that's constantly busy and there's many things going on. I think if there's one thing we've learned over the past few years, the importance for us to be able to talk and unpack those things and help us both navigate for where we might go. And that's why, you know, we've already seen we, we can yield back minutes, hours back to the caregivers, back to that person in administration and better repurpose time and where people are having to address some of the challenges to get those better outcomes. So it sounds good. And I think you just expressed using wearable type technologies and those things, which can create a better experience for me that, hey, I can still be connected, but still have freedom and autonomy, um, you know, within my everyday life, but then bring all those things back together. That also sounds expensive. And we have healthcare costs going up. And how do we address those things? You've worked on uh, Capitol Hill advocating. What are the top of minds as we rethink um, and evolve how we fund these systems? What conversations are you having around that? I think there's a lot of innovation around social determinants of health and thinking upstream. Uh, we've seen that with a lot of the new Medicaid waivers and utilizing Medicaid from everything from treatment on the streets to housing to um, people that are uh, justice involved and making sure they're connected to care when they're upon their release. I think there's increased awareness. And I also would add there's also increased partnerships between different sectors, which has predominantly been a public health issue, has become a, health, a larger health issue. And there's partnerships in and outside of clinics, which I find very encouraging. Of course, to your point about cost, it's difficult. Sometimes there's the wrong pocket problem where right. those different funding streams, I get paid to do X, I don't get paid to do Y. 
but I think there's this desire to really get down to the root causes when it comes to healthcare in general. Well, and I think you hit on two of them and two that people don't often talk about. So thank you for bringing them up. And the first one, I'll, I'll begin with the second one you mentioned, which is around partnerships and collaboration. Um, you know, many times as you've seen the ecosystem evolved, it wasn't really thought of as this interoperable mesh of experiences or data. And now it is. And partnerships and collaboration is happening at an accelerated rate. When we have needs within our own care system, we want to be able to, the same person who I may go see about this opportunity or this challenge I'm having with, I can also have this need met as well. And that's happening, and it not just be around an episodic experience, if you will, uh, which is the first one that you mentioned, social determinants of health. I can't tell you how excited I am that we're moving up from the episodic experience of a crisis and beginning to look at um, nutrition and uh, where we live and how we live and our vocation and education and social economic status and how those things correlate for something that we're all very united on, and that's to live a life that is well, to be able to pursue our dreams and to be safe and happy in doing that. How is social determinants of health? How are you seeing that? It's been a great buzzword. Yeah, so it's kind of like some of those buzzwords that are out there. How are you seeing it begin to really materially take shape versus being a concept that we're talking about? If I'm being candid, there, there are still challenges to it. And I like to sum it all up with saying behavioral health, it's a health issue with oftentimes social solutions. But I see these efforts occurring where you know doctors are trying to connect with housing authorities, for example, to make sure that the person that in front of them isn't going out to the street. They actually have a place to rest their head under a roof. Um, I think there's going to be fits and starts as we create, similar to 988. But the fact that we're talking about it, the fact that we're thinking about these underlying root issues is a huge advancement in my book. And there's still a lot of work to be done. But the fact that we're aware of the problem, what, what's the uh, um, James Baldwin quote? Not everything that's faced can be fixed, but nothing can be fixed without first facing it. I love it. I mean, and I think we need to have this. People will tell me, Tom, what's the biggest challenge? I said, well, you know what? We used to talk about moving at the speed of thought. And hey, we, however fast you think you're moving, you may not be moving fast enough. I don't think it's a speed issue anymore. I think it's an iteration problem. We need to iterate at thought. And we need to try some things. And some things aren't going to work. We're going to put it out there and say, you know what? I think we could have done that better. Some things are going to work, and we're going to be able to have a continuous improvement mindset around those pieces. And that's what I, when people ask me about healthcare and kind of everything that we're working on, what it really needs to be is people are very comfortable iterating and continuing, hey, we're going to try this, and if that works, let's accelerate. And if it doesn't, let's all look at each other and say, you know what, neat try, but let's do something different. And I think the goodness, Jonah, is I'm seeing that. I'm seeing, and it goes back to the other term that you mentioned, the partnership and collaboration. And when you look at organizations, whether uh, rural health organizations or mental health organizations or um, substance abuse organizations are now all looking at each other and saying, you know what, we might be able to do this better together and bringing it. And I know that's a big part of what your organization does is bringing everybody to the table to say, Hey, let's work on this. 
I'll give you an example. Uh, even on the federal agency piece, the, there's a lot of collaboration and opportunity. So we did a project with our friends at NACO or the National Association of Counties looking at possible funding streams to build out that crisis continuum of someone to contact, someone to respond, and somewhere safe to go. And we were looking at federal, state, local, and non-governmental funding streams and using county examples to really try to share resources and inspiration with our members. And looking at the federal agencies that provide funding for one component of the crisis continuum, you have, you know, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, you have um, SAMHSA or the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration. They also have a very long name like us. But then you also had some unusual partners. For example, the Department of Education or one that really raised my eyebrow was the Department of Agriculture, USDA, can help fund some of the brick and mortar construction that can then be a crisis uh, reception. Um, I think this type of creativity and this type of collaboration, we're just we're just scratching the surface on it, quite frankly. Well, I one, I hadn't heard that. And I think that's, you know, it goes back to the statement you made before. Everyone needs to have a place at the table. Uh, we This isn't something that, hey, if we would only do this, we're going to have to uh, think about and work on it together to be able to go do that. And hearing organizations like the USDA show up at the table and say, you know what, we have an opportunity to help participate in that. That's how we're going to achieve the things that we believe are absolutely possible. Well, let's kind of segue into our uh, last thought here. And as we're looking towards the future and we're thinking about potential and possibility, a lot of this is overwhelming. I mean, I think good things, I don't know about you, but I think good things have happened. You know, even things like around stigma, things that we wouldn't been able to talk about five years ago, we can have those conversations now. So we we fully pressed into the topic. Still more work to do on that. By no way am I declaring victory. But I think sometimes we got to all encourage ourselves, hey, good things are happening. So as we look at that next term, as we look six months from now, three years from now, five years from now, what are you seeing and what is well, how do you encourage the broader team of us for what we need to be focused and thinking about? So I think globally, there's a lot of things happening. You mentioned reduced stigma. Nationally, you know, in the next few years, the uh, Certified Community Behavioral Health Clinics or CCBHCs for outpatient behavioral health care, so substance use, mental illness, et cetera, those will be nationwide. But I think even going more local, sometimes people get overwhelmed. This is something outside of myself. One of our big values in NACBID, we have advocacy, empowerment, and community. And I think for me, being I, my history is I've been a congressional staffer. I've met with people. Uh, you know, I, I have my own thoughts on Congress. We can talk offline on that. But <laughs> but I think there's there's this um, this feeling where people feel dis, uh, removed from the policy process. They whether it's on the federal level, the local level, or the state level. But I think we need to re-engage there to share our experiences, to share our needs of our communities and to advocate for resources. I think there's a desire, especially in this field, I know politics can be divisive, we're around the holidays, sometimes those kitchen table conversations over dinner can get a little little feisty. But with, when it comes to behavioral health, that reduced stigma and that very human need, I think we can have those conversations 
and we can do what we can, where we can, how we can. Whether it's involvement in a social club, whether it's involvement at the local PTA, whether it's running, etc., we need to really focus on what we can do, where we can do it, and how we can do it. I love that. And I think that, you know, we know and it, what, what you just said has nothing to do with technology, has nothing to do with, um, hey, you got to be able to go make all these things happen before you can go engage. What you really challenge us with is good old fashioned conversation. Um, and I love the fact that you brought it back to the local level. I remember having a conversation with a mentor of mine. I said, you know, I really want to get in a place where I can advocate at bigger levels and those things. And he said, Tom, just hold on. You know, the best place you can advocate is right here at home. And what are you doing to make a difference? Because the biggest differences that's ever happened in, in our history have happened in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our communities. And, you know, I guess just one thought on that I'd ask you to share in a time, and you mentioned it, so I got to ask. That, that can sound daunting because, hey, if I speak up, Jonah, I'm going to immediately get shouted down. People are going to say they're, they're going to say you shouldn't be talking. That sounds daunting around those things. So, you know what? It's better that I just don't say anything and I'm not going to go there. How do you encourage people? It's not going to be easy. I do think it's going to be worth it. How do you encourage people to say, you know what? We absolutely have to do that, not without its risk, but this is what you need to do. Simply put, your voice matters. By virtue of you being part of the community that you live in, being part of you know the state, the country, your voice matters. You have a vested interest. And your, by your advocacy, by ver your involvement, we will be better for it. I think a rising tide raises all boats, more voices, more ideas, more passion that's out there. It's gonna keep pushing this forward. Because we both know we can't go back, right? We can't, you know, uh, abandon a lot of the things that we're building right now. Going back means that a lot of people aren't going to get the services and care they need. So your voice matters. Well said. And I think it's a great way for us to come in for a landing is Amir with Jonah Cunningham, who serves as president and CEO of the National Association of County Behavioral Health and Development Disability Directors. He's also the executive director of the National Association of Rural Mental Health. And as he just said, your voice matters. And that's what his organization does. It gives a voice to many, ensuring that things are top of mind and that we're focused on some of the most vulnerable in our community and some of those who are in need within our community. An opportunity to engage in a different way, a meaningful way, and a way that leads to the outcomes that we all want and to live a well life, to be able to have the find and connect with the help that we need. And most importantly, how can we do that with others? Jonah, how can people learn more about your organization if they wanted to get involved or join and hear more about the wonderful work you all are doing? So we have two websites, NACBHD, N-A-C-B-H-D-D.org, as well as NARM, the National Association for Rural Mental Health, narmh.org. Uh, there's resources for membership. We've also have a number of reports that we've done. Um, I'm also on, easy to find on LinkedIn, Jonah Cunningham. There'll be a nice headshot there. Uh, but please, you know, feel free to reach out. We, I think we want to be, we want to build our community. And your voice, like I said earlier, does matter. 
Well, I think these are great organizations for people to explore, and maybe this is something that directly can impact you today. I encourage you to reach out. We'll include those in the show notes. Those were a lot of acronyms, so we'll make sure, Jonah, that we get those down there and connect with everybody. But most importantly, I want to thank you and your members for all the work you do. I think often it's not always understood or even known. And organizations such as yourself and the providers that are out there are making a difference in lives each and every day. They're connecting with people who are looking for help, who need help. And your providers are giving them that, not just a compass, but that voice is giving them that pathway to where they can address the needs at the right time in the right way for the organizations that you serve. I appreciate you listening today. And Jonah Cunningham today is a member and a guest of our podcast because of suggestions you've provided. You say, you know what? We should really have Jonah on so we can hear more about what the organization's doing, top of mind things. And that's what we're doing. We encourage you to continue to share those thoughts with us so that we can continue to bring more guests on. Jonah, I'm going to pitch on spot if you don't mind, but I would love it if we could connect in the future and hear about more of the work that's going on. I know there's a lot as we go into 2024, and I think having you come on kind of that April, May timeframe, especially when we're in election season, it would be good to hear more from you. Would you be willing to do that? I would love to. Thank you very much. Anything else you want to say? Thank you for having me and elevating this conversation. Thank you to NetSmart and uh, look forward to continuing the partnership. Appreciate it as well. Thank you, everyone. And let's remember, we each, every one of us has a choice to make and that's to make every day matter. Thank you. At NetSmart, we understand the challenges facing provider organizations. Our team will help you navigate changing value-based care models with solutions and services that make person-centered care a reality. We'll equip you with technology and services that provide holistic, real-time views of care histories that inform better decision-making and better outcomes. Visit us today at ntst.com. NetSmart, serving you so you can serve others. Thanks for listening to the NetSmart Care Threads podcast. Through collaboration and conversation, we can work together to make healthcare more connected than ever before and better support the communities we serve. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you use Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars that you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.